0: We got to talking to one of our professors uh, it's named Steven Duncombe. He's still at Gallatin, uh, but his wife, Jean Rayla, ran a community site for crafters. It was called GetCrafty.com, and it had about 10,000 users. And at the time, it was just a message board, but people were really invested in it. I kind of saw an opportunity there, and Jean asked us yes. if we'd be willing to redo the site because it was looking a little long in the tooth. And we were like, sure, um, <laughs> we'll do it for free, but pro bono. Uh, mostly because we want to learn how to build this type of software. So it was like, you get a free website, we get the experience of building social software, which worked out pretty great for, for us, at least. <laughs> but yeah, so we started like actually getting involved with the community and talking and getting into these threads and uh, getting to know the members. And that was really fun. We kept on hearing as we were working on the site, rebuilding it for them was that like, man, I wish there was a better place to sell the things we were making eBay is too expensive. Everything else out there is too hard to use. I don't want to start my own site. Like this is really daunting. There's nothing that caters to us as, as makers. And that's where we were like, wait, wait, wait. Here's an opportunity. It just dropped out of the sky. All right, here's a niche. We're, we're embracing it. We're going to make a e-commerce site
1: for crafters. Sure, on its surface, an e-commerce site for crafters might sound like a niche business, but it turns out there are lots of crafters in the world, and even more people who want what they're making. In fact, at the time of this recording, that e-commerce site for crafters has grown into a company with a $28 billion market cap. It's Etsy. And the person you just heard talking about it was one of the Etsy co-founders, Chris McGuire. Are you ready to hear the story? Let's get dialed in. Hello and welcome to Webmasters, this is the podcast for people who want to learn about entrepreneurship. We do it by talking with some of the most successful entrepreneurs in internet history. My name is Aaron Dinan and I'm your host, I'm a serial entrepreneur and I teach entrepreneurship at Duke University. In this episode, we're going to be exploring e-commerce, two-sided marketplaces, and the value of niche markets, all while hearing the story of Etsy, one of the most successful E commerce marketplaces in the world. How cool is that? It's coming up right after I take a minute to tell you about our sponsor. Webmasters is being brought to you with the help and support of our partner, Latona's. Latona's is a boutique mergers and acquisitions broker. They specialize in helping people buy and sell. Cash flow positive internet businesses, and digital assets. That includes things like Etsy storefronts. So if you're interested in those, this episode of Webmasters is a great one for you. Other types of internet businesses Latonas works with are SaaS apps, Amazon FBAs, domain portfolios, and content websites. Basically, if you've got a business built around a product you're selling online, talk to the team at Latonas. They can help you get it sold for a great price or maybe you're interested in buying an internet business, that's great. Latonas can help you with that too. Check out the Latonas website where you'll find current listings for all the businesses they're currently helping sell. That website is latonas.com, L-A-T-O-N-A-S.com. If you've been joining us here on Webmasters for a while, you've noticed we tend to float back forth between stories about prominent websites most people have heard of, and more obscure stories that, while equally impactful, maybe aren't as mainstream. On this episode, we're talking about Etsy, and it's hard to get more mainstream than that, even if you've never bought from the website. Chances are you've heard of the company, and you know people who use the platform. It's, well, pretty ginormous, I believe is the word. But that's also what makes Etsy's founding story so interesting. Even though Etsy is so big and so well-known, most people don't know its founding story. It's not part of tech startup lore in the same way we always hear about how companies like Facebook and Amazon got their starts, but maybe it should be. It's definitely an interesting tale with lots of important entrepreneurial lessons. It's also probably not what you'd expect. As this episode's guest, Chris McGuire explains, even though Etsy is an online marketplace for crafters, it wasn't founded by people particularly interested in crafting. There's been some history that has been made up going
0: backwards to make it seem like it fits better. Like we we like making stuff and like, you know, we make it. But honestly, it was something that fell into our laps. It was an opportunity.
1: To me, this is a really interesting distinction. In the mythology of entrepreneurship and revolutionary companies, we tend to think of founders as people who are passionate about the problems their ventures are solving. Etsy is a good reminder of why that doesn't have to be true. Entrepreneurship is about solving other people's problems, not your problems. Chris McGuire and the Etsy story embody that. Chris didn't set out to revolutionize the crafting industry. In fact, he didn't even set out to be an entrepreneur. My family didn't
0: have any entrepreneurs. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it was a way to pay the bills, and it was a way to pay the bills from my bedroom, to be honest. I like the idea of not having to leave the house. (laughs) But once I got into it, I was like, this is so much better than working for some other jerk. I can be the jerk. That's great. Uh, So the the idea appealed to me intensely, but I didn't really have a foundation or or knowledge or really any role models to follow in that. It was just kind of making it up as I went along.
1: So what was the pathway that led you to web entrepreneurship? How'd you first get interested in tech?
0: Well, the first computer, I guess I was probably at a school. I went to public school in Philadelphia and uh, the computer lab had Apple IIs, which even back then... We're real old. Uh, It's not like I'm that old. Uh, These were very old machines, and uh, that was all the school district had. But fortunately, my parents saw that computers were something that was going to be probably pretty good for a kid to have around. Come from a very blue-collar family, so they saved up a bunch of money and got us a Tandy HX, a Tandy 1000 HX, one of the first models that had a a three-and-a-half-inch floppy drive. Uh, Back then, we called them hard disks, and floppy drives were the five-and-a-quarters. Yeah, getting that was incredible. Like, just having that in my house and felt like incantations to open the DOS files, just knowing, like, oh, setup.exe. Like, uh, nobody knows that. I, I didn't know about the dir command to just list everything on a disk. It felt like I was in a special club or some kind of secret wizard school before that was a thing.
1: <laughs> a Tandy 1000. I had one of those growing up, too. I remember playing a lot of the original SimCity on it.
0: Yeah. And for a long time, we had that machine. They upgraded like the next year to one that was only slightly faster, had the same capabilities, but still no hard drive. And uh, the hard drive divide is what kept me out of most modern computing until basically I went into high school uh but a lot of games came out a lot of programs came out you had to be able to install them to a hard disk and if it said install.exe i was like oh we can't use this oh geez and i really really wanted to play kid pics specifically which for those who aren't familiar with it was a uh, art game for kids uh kind of like mario paint if you played that on the super nintendo which is also equally old i realize now but uh, i loved art i loved drawing and got to love video games and really you could argue that my first piece of computing was the coleco vision my family's first console, and I played that a lot. Um, We had the adapter that let you play Atari 2600 games, and we'd play a bunch of those. I've recently acquired one again just to go back, and um, it's hard to go back to those games. But shortly after that, you know, we we got the NES, like millions of others, and it blew my mind. Uh, The fact that I could control what was happening on the television screen was so empowering. Yeah, I mean, it's probably cliche at this point, but Super Mario... Definitely changed my life.
1: <laughs> and what about the web? When did you first discover that?
0: That didn't really happen until high school. I went to a J.R. Masterman public school in Philly. There was no internet connection at the school when I started there. So we had a wonderful librarian named Paul Scare, and he had one machine connected to the internet. I forget what specifically it was. It was probably some ISDN line or something he got to the school just for this one machine. And uh, me and my friends, instead of going up to uh, the schoolyard, we would all go down to the library and just crowd around it, see what websites we could visit, and it was awesome. A couple years later, my parents got America Online, which was kind of, to my group of friends, the first mainstream introduction to the Internet. Like this is something that your parents could do. You know, you get the, uh, the floppy or the, the CD in the mail, you install it, you're good to go. And as part of that, uh, they had this thing called members.aol.com. Where anyone who was a subscriber got two free megabytes of space to put on the internet. So you had your own long, long URL that you could direct people to. And I was like, oh man, so I can put something up on this space for free, effectively, and have anyone in the world be able to see it. That's so cool. So I started making a personal website uh, all about comics that I drew and art that I would make. And. Stories I would write, and just anything I thought was funny, like so many people back then. Uh, but that was really fun, and I started getting into HTML. This is before CSS was a thing, so there was a lot of uh, shoving images into HTML in a very horrible way. <laughs> uh, but yeah, th- that was a ton of fun, and I love being able to like go to friends and be like, hey, here's my URL. And it would be members.aol.com slash user slash wacko2424 slash index.html. html. <laughs>
1: So how did that web tinkering turn into an entrepreneurial career?
0: It was sort of by accident. Um, Like, it was something I enjoyed doing on the side. I was like, oh, I'm going to be an artist. I love making comics. I would love to work in video games. That would be awesome to get into. And this web thing, it seems kind of interesting. I'll keep doing it. It's fun. There weren't really internet-specific courses in high school at all. And once I got to college, uh, I went to NYU, and I got into the Gallatin School of Individualized Study, which is kind of... The School for Weirdos at NYU, for lack of a better term, it's the type of person who none of the other programs quite fit, and they want to cobble together their own education. And that was me and a lot of my friends. Got into that so I could take classes from any of the schools in NYU through this kind of like glue program and met a lot of awesome people there, uh, really fun people, and a lot of insane people, (laughs) and ended up working with some of them. I was kind of working my way through college. I was doing work studies, and uh, the first time I started doing internet stuff for hire was uh, with a friend of mine named Josh Corwin, and he was a designer. He didn't really do any code at all, but he was like, hey, I'm doing all this graphic design. They really want websites, and do you think it could help me out? And I was like, yeah. And so I started doing work for him, and it was the most money I'd ever seen. It would be like, oh my god, I got $1,000 for working just two weeks of work. It's crazy. Four digits, the biggest checks I've ever seen in my life. So I did a lot of that. (laughs) Really, I was like, this is cool. This is cool for now. I'm going to keep doing it. And I slowly got better at it. Uh, but, you know, I never saw it as like a long-term thing. But then opportunities kept on falling into my lap just because I
1: could make an internet, you know. <laughs> ah, okay. So you did client work. I know that story. I-, I did it too. I feel like lots of tech entrepreneurs got their starts by coding websites for small business clients. And it's pretty much universally terrible work.
0: Yeah. You know, we have some great clients and some Less great ones, but uh, you don't feel like you are the master of your own domain. And, and it's weird because you're an entrepreneur. Like This is supposed to be your business, and yet everything you do is directed by a third party. And it's felt, in many ways, more restrictive than just being at a job. So that made me want to, uh, to branch out from that. <laughs> the money was great. Money was great, but uh, getting called up by clients at all hours of the night over the color of buttons on their website was less
1: great. Okay, so you eventually decide client work isn't for you. You want to build your own thing instead. Is, is that kind of right? Is that how you get to Etsy? Yeah, well, so
0: I was really good friends with uh, this fellow named Haim Shopik at Gallatin.
1: Haim Shopik would go on to become one of Chris's Etsy co-founders, working alongside Chris on the technology side of the business.
0: He used to work in the finance industry. He actually dropped out of high school, worked at Goldman Sachs for a while, and then came back to college. So he was a little bit older than us, and um, he had a lot more experience. He worked in financial technology. And he is, was, and still is a very grumbly guy. But we both love video games, and we hit it off pretty quickly. And uh, the two of us were working on an independent study to do community software for the school, for Gallatin. And so we basically took this prefab open source message board. I forget it was, it was like PHP BB or something like that. One of those, we had an independent study, so we got class credit for working on this community site uh, and it was great. That's actually some of my favorite memories of online community was on that site, like a message board where people you knew in real life would just post stuff and uh, you would have real conversations, like the threads would be a conversation. It wouldn't just be someone dropping a tweet into the ether. We forged relationships and started art projects, and it was amazing, really, for lack of a better term. But then later on, this other fellow at Gallatin, uh, who was a year ahead of me named Rob Kalin, reached out. And he had been involved somewhat in some of the student government stuff, but he graduated. And then he was like, hey, Chris, I hear you're good at the the Internet stuff. You know, I want to do some contract work. I was like, all right.
1: And Rob Kalen would go on to become Etsy's mercurial founding CEO. So as you can hear, we're getting to the story of how Etsy's founding team began to form. It was all a bit serendipitous, they weren't best friends who decided to start a company together. Instead, Chris, Hyam and Rob began as an ad hoc team working together on one-off client projects. They got frustrated working for other people and eventually began thinking about building their own thing.
0: We started making these sketches for this sort of social media-driven community site. And it was nebulous. It would change every week. Uh, At first, you know, it would be like, ah, here's this site where people can... Be on a message board and give gifts to each other. It's like, no, 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 let's change that. This is going to be a site where anyone can use it. We, we give it to grandparents and they can start their own websites and they can show it to their grandchildren. We just went through all these weird sketches. But at one point we cobbled together, all right, it's a blog and a message board all together. And it could be huge. This could be a big thing. And this was right at the beginning of that Web 2.0 era where we were really influenced by places like Flickr, which is, but really was an awesome photo sharing site uh, and community site. And so we kind of got this together and Rob knew this really fun guy named uh, Spencer. His family was in real estate in Manhattan. Uh, He was like a big kid, but uh, basically talked him into giving us our first $10,000 investment. Like, Oh, we're going to build this site. It's going to be great. And he's like, Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Here's $10,000. And we're like, (laughs) yeah, that's awesome. We we got this money. Uh, I can pay my student loans. Thank God.
1: It's at this point that Chris and the team took on the pro bono website work for the wife of one of their NYU professors that you heard about at the beginning of this episode, and that decision introduced them to the online crafting community.
0: So we started like actually getting involved with the community and talking and getting into these threads and uh, getting to know the members, and that was really fun. My favorite part is the community element. One thing we kept on hearing as we were working on the site, rebuilding it for them, was that like, man... I wish there was a better place to sell the things we were making. eBay is too expensive. Everything else out there is too hard to use. I don't want to start my own site. Like This is really daunting. There's nothing that caters to us as makers. And that's where we were like, wait, wait, wait. Here's an opportunity. It just dropped out of the sky. All right, here's a niche. We're, we're embracing it. We're going to make an e-commerce site for crafters. Great. Good. <laughs> so we kind of took that $10,000 that we raised to build something completely different. And we're like, hey, Spencer, we, we got this new idea. It's fine. It's fine. He was like, uh, are you sure it's fine? We're like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's going to be great. And that's kind of the genesis of what became Etsy.
1: So uh, I've got to ask, the thing that's amazing about Etsy is it basically managed to overcome one of the hardest problems in startups, which is successfully launching a two-sided marketplace. It's the classic chicken or the egg problem. How do you get the buyers without the sellers? And how do you get the sellers without the buyers? So how'd you all do it?
0: Yeah, I get that question uh, a fair amount. You do it by stacking the deck in your favor. And in this case, we started with a pre-existing online community. We had Get Crafty. And Rob eventually made inroads to uh, contact the owner of another site called crafter.org, which had 100,000 users on it. Uh, so it was you know, 10 times bigger than the site we were working on, just to get advice and just kind of get to know their people. Basically, it was one of those situations where build it and they will come. The sellers will come. You know, if this is really a problem and there's a market for it, there's probably a group somewhere online talking about that problem. And you got to find them. Especially now, like, I send a lot of people to Reddit because Reddit seems to be the place that has usurped traditional message boards. Uh, So, yeah, go there. There's probably a subreddit for the problem that you want to solve, and you should go there and get to know them.
1: This is another interesting part of the Etsy story that's kind of hard to recognize in its current behemoth public company form. While Etsy today is a thriving marketplace with millions of buyers that draw sellers to it, that's not how Etsy began. Instead, in its earliest days, Etsy wasn't trying to be a marketplace. Instead, it was focused on solving a very specific problem for a very niche group of people. Etsy was giving crafters a place to sell their products online. It wasn't meant to be a marketplace. It just so happened that the sellers Etsy was serving brought an additional value to the community. In the very beginning, the sellers were the buyers. We made
0: sure that you make an account, the base account is a buyer, and then you can put a little bit more information and become a seller. They love to buy from each other. Somebody in Wyoming would see something sold by someone in Brooklyn, and they'd buy something, they'd form a a relationship over it. They'd talk in the forums about it. Uh, We set up chat rooms and really they built it themselves. A big part of it was that we didn't promise anything at the time, other than we will give you a web presence that you can conduct business through. Uh, We we didn't promise like, Hey, you're going to get all these buyers coming in. That wasn't ever something that we intended to promise. This is your web presence. We're going to give it to you for dirt cheap. It was too cheap at the time. When we launched, it was free. That's another story. But that the first pricing model was $0.10 per listing for six months and 3.5% of the final sale. So $0.10 to get online. You can't really beat that.
1: At what point did you all realize you'd really hit on something valuable? Was there an aha moment where it was clear Etsy was going to turn into something huge? You know, it snuck up slowly. It wasn't something where like I
0: turned around one day, I was like, oh man, we've made it. It felt like we were clawing and scraping the entire time. I mean, I was working on the site for about four years and that whole time was just heads down to my detriment, just heads down working and not considering the big picture stuff nearly enough. Yeah, I guess like, a big part of it is when magazines started contacting us and, and news reporters would be like, hey, we want to have interviews. And you know, usually they want to talk to Rob, who was the CEO, but oftentimes they want to talk to the whole founding team Okay, we're being interviewed for things, you know, I tell my mom she'll be excited, you know, to see us in a magazine, that's cool. To be honest, I didn't know that anyone liked Etsy, really liked it, until after I left the company. We launched the site in 2005. Haim and I left together in August 2008, and it wasn't until after that, because all we heard were complaints. (laughs) The people who are usually the most vocal people coming in, this is broken, I hate the way this looks, oh my god. And it's just like, ah, it just felt like everyone hated Etsy. I did not have the the presence of mind to kind of step out of that mindset and and see the forest for the trees and realize like, wait, no, 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 we we actually built something people like. Oh, okay. That's kind of cool. Uh, I wish I could have enjoyed that while I was working on it.
1: (laughs) And here, Chris's story provides another valuable entrepreneurial lesson. It's a lesson about criticism and negative feedback. You'd assume from the outside looking in, that building a successful company, especially one like Etsy, would feel pretty good. Millions of users would be signing up, they'd be loving your product, and if you were running that company, you'd think you were on top of the world. But the truth is, when you're in that position, you're not gonna be focused on the good things. You're going to be obsessed with all the bad things, all the flaws, all the complaints and criticisms, because those are the things that need to be fixed if you wanna keep growing. So even though Etsy was growing rapidly, Chris and the rest of the founding team were so busy trying to do everything and plug all the holes that they didn't get to enjoy themselves or appreciate the success of what they built.
0: It's hard to encapsulate that job. I remember on my last week, I was trying to write down all the things that I took care of on a day-to-day basis. And I was like, this is too much. I'm stupid. (laughs) I was a developer. Uh, I worked the front end to the back end. Uh, Haim was mostly back end stuff, although he did some front end stuff as well. But I focused on the front, he focused on the back. And I did a fair amount of design work. Rob was the head designer. He did most of the UIs from scratch, but Haim and I also had a pretty good eye for just knowing what was good and what wasn't. And we collaborated really. It was it was a good experience. Like we fought a lot, and it was it was definitely uh, painful sometimes. But I think truly, at the end, we came out with something that was better than something any of the three of us could have done alone. You know, we did QA, we did support, uh, we did a little bit of PR when we would do interviews. I was in the forums actively until the. People we hired to be in the forums begged me to stop doing it, and I did. (laughs) Um, I enjoyed it a lot more when it was smaller, and the bigger it got, the less I enjoyed it, to be honest. It was harder to be quite as agile. I hate to use the word agile because that's a loaded term in this realm, but uh, yeah, agile. It used to be like, oh, I came up with this great idea for a feature. Cool, let's prototype it. All right, let's throw it out there. Great. That was so fun. You get to hear what the users say and look at the stats of how they're using it. Uh, but you can't do that once you reach scale. And once once you're worried about load, which became a crippling problem for us, back then things were much harder. And we made them harder than they had to be. This is before the cloud, right? You couldn't just say, oh, I got to spin up a server. Great. Just send another couple bucks to Amazon. We literally built our servers ourselves. We have photos of Haim assembling the RAM into the motherboards. And you know, we, we'd ship them off into a taxi cab because we didn't have cars. Just take the taxi cab over to the data center and install them. And I spliced the wires. We all spliced the wires ourselves. That's not a thing people do now. Um, and I wouldn't recommend it. But yeah, we did everything. And it was exhausting. And we did not sleep enough. And <laughs> work-life balance was not a thing. And that is something I would entreat anyone who wants to be an entrepreneur to really keep mind of, that you should sleep. Sleep is good. Is that eventually why you left? Did you just get burnt out? Sure. Yeah, this is one of those points. It's like, how in-depth do I get? And how many people do I want to keep on my good side? No, I mean, I really don't hold anything against anyone from back then. Uh, at the time, the, there was definitely high emotions. But now, it's hard to be mad. That, that's, that's for sure. I'm not good at holding a grudge. So the site grew, and we had to hire people. And Haim and I did our best to try to hire uh, for the engineering team. But we were also constantly felt like we were under a money crunch. We weren't really given a budget. It was like, all right, you got to get the bare minimum amount of heads in here and try to keep the ship running. And so Haim was always trying to cut corners with the servers, and we were trying to keep headcount to a minimum, which is a mistake. And we were also really bad at at letting go. This was our baby. We grew it from the ground up. And if we weren't there every day, it was going to fall over, I swear. And and we should have been engineering ways where we could have taken ourselves out,
1: but we didn't. So money was tight? You were under-resourced? Was that the problem? What was the original business model behind Etsy?
0: Our business model was based on selling things. It was very obvious how to make money. We were selling things through the site. We take a cut of the sale. Done. Most internet companies at the time were based on ads. Still are. Still are based on, on ads. And um, that's just not a business model that's ever appealed to me. There was a point where we started trying to introduce some more paid ads into the site and I was like, I understand we got to do this, but I don't like it. But then we took more money. You know, we we had those first early angel investors. We had two of them based in New York. But then we took money from Union Square Ventures. And uh, that's kind of (laughs) when things are real now. You're, you're, You're running with people who expect you to turn things around. This was something I was not fully cognizant of at the time. I think we would all say that, man, this didn't turn out exactly how I expected <laughs> uh, in terms of like, how things would shift. Uh, but like they say, they call it the rocket fuel, and they're not lying. Like, hey, we put this money in. We want 10x, so make it happen. Basically, there was a lot of conversation over whether or not the leadership team was the best to run the company. Rob's a very eccentric guy. I haven't talked to him in a little while, but uh, I doubt that has changed. He's very creative, very good at what he does, but also very chaotic, for lack of a better term. You know, Haim and I felt like we could rein him in and, like, we get something cool made. But it turned into a situation where the three of us were kind of agents of chaos, I guess. (laughs) Basically, Rob decided one day that he wanted to step down. He didn't want to be the CEO anymore. And uh, he hired a woman named Maria Thomas to uh, first be the COO. Uh, But very quickly, he was like, you know, I'm stepping down all the way. She's going to be CEO. I'm going to be a chief creative officer, or something like that. We just did not get along with Maria. Why not? What was your concern with her leadership? She was coming from NPR, and uh, she, in our eyes, didn't understand the site or, or the business. Uh, and so we butted heads a lot. A lot of that's on us. A lot of that's on the situation. But we are like, I don't think we can work like this. Basically, we, we got to a point where we were like, all right. We're willing to hire someone, get somebody in here above us who can run engineering as a whole. We'll keep the site running under the hood and keep our team going, and that'll be great in theory. And so she was like, all right, started interviewing a candidate. The first person she interviews, that we know of at least, was a guy named by the name of Chad Dickerson. He worked at Yahoo. So we interviewed him, and we were like, all right, yeah, he seems fine. But uh, who, who else do we got? And then Maria's like, well, I'm sorry, I already hired Chad. It's done. He hardballed me, and I had to give him a job or not. And then we were like, oh, well, we quit. So (laughs) at that moment, Haim and I uh, made our exit. And uh, those are the broad strokes of it.
1: What was it like to just basically walk away from your baby, from the thing you'd devoted so much time and effort and passion to? Uh,
0: It was painful. This thing was our whole lives for four years. And uh, now it wasn't all of a sudden. And so there's a big adjustment period. For us and the company, for sure. We spent the last couple of weeks going over with the the teams, how everything worked on the site and where things were. And we realized, like, Dan was like, man, there's a lot of things about this that we have not shared with people. We did a bad job at that. But like, you don't understand this stuff. And that's our fault. <laughs> and we're like, sorry, guys. Uh, good luck. <laughs> but then it was... Immensely relieving to not have that weight on our shoulders anymore. And so like we just took a couple months off and slept. Uh, And and we we did kind of this cross-country trip where Haim and I went to Los Angeles. We went to BlizzCon to go hang out with video game nerds. Then we went to Disney World and we went to Vermont to a cabin. And my wife calls it our honeymoon. But uh, it was was important for decompressing and kind of after that get our heads straight. And all right, there's more to the world than this website. (laughs) Let's move on.
1: Based on the story Chris has shared, it seems like the real turning point for Etsy was around the decision to take venture capital. A lot of entrepreneurs think fundraising and venture capital is a solution to their problems. They don't have enough people or money or other types of resources, and VC presumably gets them those things. That's not actually true. That's not what venture capital does. Venture capital isn't something you take to solve your problems. Venture capital is something you take in order to scale a business that's already operating. In other words, venture capital doesn't solve problems, it creates new problems. Specifically, once you take venture capital, you've got a new job and a new responsibility. You have investors who are expecting something like a 10x return on the money they gave you. And let me tell you, that ain't easy. Remember that the average return in the stock market is something like 10% and that's if you're really good in the markets but a 10x return on investment capital is more like a 1000% return. That's orders of magnitude bigger. It's really, really ridiculously hard to achieve. Those kinds of expectations can stress a founding team to its breaking point. And that's kind of what happened at Etsy.
0: There was a schism at the root of the founding team too, where Rob was all in for raising a bunch of money and making a big thing. And he's like, I want millions and millions of users, millions and millions of dollars. It'll be incredible. And I want it to grow with the site. As we make more profit, then we can hire some more people, make it a little bigger. There's no reason for this model not to be profitable very early on. Like it's something where we could have had 100,000 users. We're making some money. We have a team. And that team can slowly grow as the user base grows. But, um, you know, that's not the rocket fuel VC way we kind of stepped in and I was like, all right, like, uh, I'm not fully on board with the rocket fuel, but all right, we're doing it. All right, let's go. Uh, So that was certainly the source of a lot of consternation between the three of us. You don't get it until you're in it. And then you're in it and you're like, oh,
1: this is what I didn't get. (laughs) And just for the sake of clarity, at what point in Etsy's growth curve did you step away from the company? When we left, we were a couple,
0: a month or two removed from our millionth registered user, uh, and it felt like we were closely coming in on our two millionth. It was ramping up. We still weren't profitable, though, and that was kind of something that stuck in my crawl. Instead of becoming profitable, we would do things like we rented out this office. Which still was not a nice office, but Brooklyn real estate was not cheap. <laughs> uh, and I hired a bunch of people, and like I would have loved to keep the headcount low and uh, you know not get a giant office. You know, work remote as much as possible. But yeah, so it was between a million and two million users at that point and growing, and it was getting to the point where there were legalities involved with how we derived our statistics. Like uh, we had to write the the database queries in a specific way so that lawyers would not get angry at us. Yeah, I mean at that point. <laughs> scaling wasn't fun I enjoyed building something new I was like I can do this stuff and these are problems to solve but they're not interesting problems it's not interesting for me to figure out how we shard the database in the most effective way I'm like all right that's kind of interesting to know about on a baseline level and you start doing it and it's just not as fun as building new stuff and talking to people and it it did get to a point where we, we couldn't talk to users in that intimate setting we couldn't jump in the chat room and just be like hey what's up guys we made a lot of friends who were sellers, and uh, we're still friends with a lot of them, to be honest. And that's really cool. Yeah, it was just uh, bigger than we wanted. I would put it that way.
1: And what do you think about where Etsy's gone since you left it? Did you ever imagine it becoming a multi-billion-dollar public company? It's so big now; it's hard for me to
0: wrap my head around and have like an opinion. It's—it feels like, what's your opinion of this country? It's like, well, that country's got a lot of people in it. Uh, so it's hard for me to paint this broad brush but you know it's it's still out there it's still allowing people to live out their livelihoods it still makes people really angry uh, perhaps increasingly so it's a bigger audience now so the anger grows with those peaks and flows and i just really happy it's not my problem anymore <laughs> it's cool it's there I haven't been to their new offices they look really nice and really expensive it would be cool maybe one day to visit it but It's
1: all the way in Brooklyn. I'll get there one day. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fair enough. So aside from maybe planning an eventual visit to the Etsy offices in Brooklyn, what have you been working on since leaving the company? Well, I kind
0: of got to a place where I I started another couple companies, then worked for someone else for a change at this company called Catchafire for a couple years, and then got to a point where it saved up a bunch of money. And I'm like, I can do anything I want with my life right now. Uh, what do I do? Well, my two favorite things in life are ice cream and video games. So it should be one of those things. So I ended up opening an ice cream shop. I make my own ice cream and you can play video games in it. And probably down the road, I'll make a video game about ice cream or something.
1: Wow. Tech Titan to ice cream maker. That's a pretty big shift. What drove it? I just love ice cream like most people. I uh, grew up eating it. Again, making
0: things, having my hand involved in making something and This is my first brick and mortar experience ever. A large part of this was knowing that I had facilitated literally millions of transactions on the internet and didn't know any of the people involved for the most part. The brick and mortar experience is the opposite of that. Like every person, you see their face, you hand them something, they hand you money. There was something appealing about that. Just getting back to like, what is commerce? Just seeing commerce on a ground level, I think, gives me a better basis for (laughs) these huge branching monopolies. Definitely getting down to basics and understanding the roots
1: of what it was I was doing in the first place, I guess. And what can you tell us about the differences between running a billion-dollar tech company versus running a local ice cream parlor?
0: <laughs> That's a great question. Strong opinions about both. I've heard more positive things about ice cream. Uh, if somebody's happy on the internet for an e-commerce transaction, they're silent. You know, Silence is usually taken for happiness. But uh, ice cream, like, if they're happy, they'll tell you, like, this is delicious. This is the best vanilla I ever had. Well, thank you. Thank you. Of course, you also get people like, this old lady came up to me the other day and was like, this peach is terrible. And I was like, I'm I'm sorry you don't like it. It's one of my favorite seasonal flavors. She's like, you should not sell it. I was like, okay, I got it. (laughs) Personally, I love it, but I, I get it. Face to face, you hear the positive. And that's been great. Like, actually hearing people who like it. I don't have to wonder if people like my ice cream like I did with Etsy. Like, I know it.
1: You know, Chris makes a good point. For all the admittedly well-deserved praise internet businesses get for their scalability and accessibility and things like that, they also create a painful disconnect between entrepreneurs and the consumers they're serving that doesn't happen as easily in brick and mortar stores. In Chris's ice cream parlor, it's easy to tell when someone is enjoying the product. In contrast, as you heard, when he was building Etsy, he struggled to see the millions of users he was making happy. But pretty clearly, there were definitely a lot of them, and they all owe a huge thanks to Chris McGuire. I want to thank him too for taking the time to share his story and the story of Etsy. If you'd like to try his ice cream, you can find it at the Tubby Robot Ice Cream Factory in Philadelphia, PA. I don't know about you, but ice cream and video games seem like a pretty great combination to me. If you make it there, drop us a line and let us know how it is. You can let us know on Twitter. We're at WebmastersPod. And you can also use that handle to share any thoughts, feedback, or comments about the episode. Or ping me directly. I'm at Aaron Dinan That's A-A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N. I also produce lots of other educational content about startups and entrepreneurship. You can find it all all on my website. That's AaronDinnon.com. Thank you to our audio engineer, Ryan Higgs, for his help producing this episode. And thanks to our sponsor, Latonas, for their support. Remember, if you're interested in buying or selling an internet business, be sure to visit Latonas.com. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did... Please let us know, as you heard in Chris's story, these digital types of ventures aren't the best when it comes to connecting creators with positive feedback. So if you wouldn't mind, take a minute to give us a nice rating and review on your podcasting app of choice. We'd really appreciate it. And be sure you're subscribed to Webmasters so you get the next episode as soon as it's released. That's coming soon. Until then, time for me to sign off. Goodbye. By the way, when I Googled the phrase Etsy founders, your name doesn't come up. How do you feel about that? (gasps) (laughs) I don't know. I haven't actually searched that in a while.
0: Oh, yeah. I don't know. I don't really care. It's actually nice. I like being under the radar. (laughs) I'm pretty happy about that, actually. I try not to get too much into startups because... It's hard for people to relate to, I find. <laughs> uh, but if I was to get into it, if someone's like, hey, you got to meet Chris. Like, He did an internet thing. Actually, that's how my neighbors have described it. It's like, oh, we found out about you, Chris. We heard you did an internet. Um, and I was like, yeah, I, I guess I guess I did. There's a rumor going around the neighborhood here that I uh, founded Instagram. And I just don't know where that came from. And most people here don't have any idea of what it's like to be in a startup or be in that world and it's that's what i like about it
1: (laughs) you see if i were you i would totally lean into that i'd be like yeah of course i found it." instagram
0: it's funny because when they started mentioning it like two years ago i i don't have a smartphone like i don't even have instagram so i was just like oh yeah that's not right i just said that's not right sorry (laughs) but you know not trying to draw on it more i don't know i like just being a regular human being